Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powadic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Powadic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at the Toronto Real Estate Forum, the large event that goes on every, every December. Our guest today is Mark Kenny, who is president and CEO of CapReit. Welcome to the show. Yeah, good morning. So, as always... Love to hear about how you kind of got into the industry. Why real estate? <laughs> well, I think my story is not completely unique because a lot of the boys that I knew growing up were either interested in cars, girls, or real estate. And that was kind of or all uh, three. I wanted yeah. all the three. So I took a very early interest in real estate. I came from a pretty humble family beginnings and was always fascinated with home ownership and lifestyle. And, you know, I had moved, our family immigrated to, to Australia in 1979. And it was during that time I started high school in grade seven. And being a Canadian kid moving to Sydney, Australia, I had a funny accent that wasn't as well received as you can uh, imagine (laughs) today. Everybody thought I was American and that was not a popular thing. And so I'd get beat up at school on a pretty regular basis to the point where... For sounding funny. Yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't (laughs) go to school. And in Sydney, you could get away with not going to school all year round. And I caddied on the weekend and, you know, so what that meant was I'd play golf and I play golf probably three times a week instead of going to school. And you can only do so much golf and you've got to read something. So I would read real estate magazines because they were free on the corner and I really became a study of the Sydney real estate market and became obsessed with real estate. So Capri's expanding into Australia, is that that where you're going with (laughs) this? Well, it's another vowel. We have, you know... I-res and E-res and some people said we need A-res so you you never know (laughs) but anyway so long story short what happened there was I was always interested in real estate when I went to university came back to Canada went to university I met my wife and my wife's mother worked for Tridel and that's when I was first introduced to the world of condos in Toronto and I begged the people at Tridel to hire me for free and I had no other interest in working anywhere but tried out. And so when I graduated from university, they couldn't find any paperwork where they could hire me for free. So they actually hired me and that's where my career started. Would you recommend uh, as a career path to young people now to not go to school and golf? Or is it, uh... <laughs> my kids hope never listen to this podcast. <laughs> uh, my kids are both excellent, excellent students and engaged in academics. Uh, I would though recommend that kids give real estate a thought. I think the, one of the changing topics slightly is uh, I think real estate's an underappreciated sector for kids and they're drawn to technology. They're drawn to the cool factor and and real estate doesn't seem to have a lot of cool factor, but yeah, I would really say it's an underlooked opportunity for a lot of kids. They they find it later in their lives when coming out of school would be a great time to start a career in real estate. Let's talk about CapReed. Well, yeah, you, how long were you at Tridel for? When did, you, when did the jump happen? Or were there any other pit stops in between? There were. There were. So what happened is I was, once I started working at, at Tridel, I was an assistant property manager for, the, for a condominium group, Dell Property Management. And one of the challenges that I had back then was that I looked like I was 12 years old and I, it was a handicap in getting promoted. I really wanted to become a property manager, but they wanted me to grow a beard. I couldn't grow a beard. And I felt highly frustrated that I, my promotion was contingent on me looking older. And one of my mentors there, Jim Ritchie, who's still the VP of sales and marketing at Tridel, gave me the advice that, Mark, you may want to look at rental. 
because it's a business. Condo management at the time was is when today's more of a service, whereas rental was a real business. And that's when I made the, the move into the rental sector. And I went to work for Greenwind Property Management. And I had a, just a phenomenal run at Greenwind for about four years. At the end, I was running their largest private portfolio working for the Al Green family in central Toronto. I had almost 4,000 apartments. I was 26 years old. And I'd heard about another company out there by the name of uh, Realstar that had just gotten started that was really, you know, the place to go because it was full of all these bankers and they had incredible training. And, and the people at, at Greenman were incredibly kind to me and supportive of my career, but I'd never really learned anything about the rental business. It was making it up as I went and picking up pieces here and there. And Realstar was really known for its training. So I made inquiries and after incredibly difficult internal debate, I was lucky enough to be offered a position at Realstar, looking after Northern Ontario and Western Canada. And so at 27, I made that move. And I was the first, one of the first, there may have been one other guy that was from the industry Hmm. that they'd hired. Everybody else had come from the Bank of Montreal. And it was just an incredibly institutional type apartment management company, one of the first in Canada. And my job was very unique because I would have been one of the first in Canada to be managing property, multi-province, and Realstar was the first to go nationwide for apartments. And the Northern Ontario, Western Canada portfolio was part of that big expansion. So basically everything but Central Ontario. Yeah. Southern Ontario. That's right. That's Which right. Which is probably an awesome learning experience. Because working be, for Greenwood, you would have been predominantly GTA. That's exactly and correct. And all of a sudden you get to understand of different factors and the different variables that exist geographically across it, the country. It was fascinating. And the most fascinating part of the job was on the acquisition side. We had to audit the management company, the incumbent management company, and look for flaws and business improvements. So a big part of the job when we bought a building wasn't just the due diligence on the market, but was the due diligence on what the owner, current manager, was doing wrong. Right. And we had to do full reports on the gaps and the problems, and that alone exposed me to so many management companies across the country that it gave me incredibly unique insight to how everybody was running their business. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So then Capri, I guess the next stop's Capri? Next stop was CapRead. So as much as I, again, loved my time at Realstar, I was, I'd had a, a young, uh, my first child. My son was born. I was way two to three weeks a month. Yeah, of course. I was going to Western Canada. And the growth was there, but they weren't in the position to move me out there permanently yet. And this opportunity came up with CapRead. It was to run the operation, which was a bit of a step up for me on an extremely distressed portfolio. But I met with Tom. He and I had a great first connection, and the rest is history. That was over almost 22 years ago. Why was the portfolio in distress at the time? Well, all the buildings had been bought out of receivership and purchased privately short-term while the CapRead IPO happened. So the initial portfolio was a group of buildings in Scarborough. There were actually two buildings that closed later in Halifax, but they were managed by third parties. And the IPO happened in uh, mid-'97, and I met Tom in October of 97, started December. So, you know, maybe just let's fast forward a little bit. You got through that period and then Capri, at the time, how big was Capri? You know, where were they in the scale of Canadian, Canadian ownership? 3,400 apartments. At the time. Yeah. And what are they today? We have 60, almost 65,000 units that we own slash manage. We're not a manager for hire but we do manage two other REITs. So we obviously manage and own all of the assets of CapReit, 
We also, in 2014, went to Ireland, ultimately created a REIT in Ireland by the name of IRES. And CapRead is the, we provide all the property asset mm-hmm. function, function for that REIT. We are the largest shareholder of that REIT and continue to do the acquisition. You talk about the, the motivation for expanding globally. Yeah, so interesting. So everything, it would appear like it's incredible strategy. In most cases, you fall upon these things is the actual truth. So Caprit was doing a great job of expanding into other provinces across Canada. And so we became very comfortable operating in different cultural environments. Going to the province of Quebec was like going to another country. Going to Alberta was culturally incredibly different than Ontario. BC was incredibly different than Nova Scotia. So we were, became quite adept at functioning in distinct marketplaces. So when we became aware of the distress and the calamity of what had happened in Ireland, basically every bank had been wiped out and every property in the country was in receivership under the, uh, been reclaimed by the banks. So what happened was there was condos that were built in Dublin without pre-sales. Mm. This is what happened in Canada way back. And so those condos became vacant, empty, and were being sold for almost 30 cents on the dollar, the original builds were. And because Ireland was not, it was a home ownership market, there was no rental expertise, none. Mm. And because people had no ability to get a loan from the bank to buy, they had to rent. They became renters by necessity. So there was nobody that was able to fill that need. We saw that. And we put together the original portfolio. What, it was spectacular. The IRES portfolio today is arguably one of the highest quality apartment portfolios in the world. Is it still growing? It's still growing. But it's primarily, its challenge has been, Ireland is a big country, but it's really a country of one city, Dublin. Mm. And the REIT today, the assets, we're now up to about 4,000 units are Dublin. We're now moving into Cork for the very first time. But once you get outside of the top three kind of Irish cities, you're done. There's not really much more. So incredibly high quality. We're now building to grow there. So okay. the REIT has a, a development arm that will be delivering product to itself, and that will become the future uh, place of growth. And you, and you also got some expansion into Netherlands. Yeah, so the, we made one mistake with IRES. We should have kept it fully external property and asset managed. There is a CEO. There is an Irish board. We're limited in our ownership. It's difficult operating in the European banking environment. The central bank in Ireland has become regulatory-wise quite cumbersome. So we became aware of opportunity in the Netherlands where there was great volume, great volume of ability to buy buildings. Also, absolutely no rental expertise. The compelling reason for both of these countries was four to five cap, well today the rationale is compelling, four to five cap apartment buildings that you can long-term finance for 1.5%. So in Canada, great spread. it's yeah, a great spread. So that spread is unheard of in Canada. You know, you're in the three and a half cap environment and seeing two, eight money here. You're getting yeah. four cap, one, five, 80% leverage if you want it. There's no CMHC environments. It's directly off the bank's balance sheet. Hmm. So in the Netherlands, we can talk all day about the Netherlands, but the product gets delivered out of housing corporations and it's traditionally been sold into the private market who sell off the units individually. They sell individually because there's a value disconnect between when it's a full rental building and the individual sales. They're worth about 30 to 30 to 35% more. You have to wait over time to get that money, but private owners will come in, buy them and just sell them, not hold them. And we said, wait, why do you have to sell them? These are four, these are stabilized four or five caps. Yeah, yeah. We'll keep them. We still have the feature of owning the properties and being able to sell them off individually should we choose. You want to, but if you run a 10-year IRR, you've probably got a better return than selling them off individually. And, and your capital appreciation arguably just keeps going up. Right. 
Yeah. The cherry on top. Yeah, it is. So is that still a growth? And that's you're in growth mode there also? Yeah, we've put together, the company's deployed almost a billion dollars, or a billion and a half dollars in the last two years in the Netherlands alone. We did a reverse takeover of a Toronto listed by the name of EC REIT. Vended all of our apartment buildings in. We issued equity and we're now down to, we own 73% of the company. So the markets that you're in buying new product, is Canada delivering the lowest yield? Canada is delivering something very, very unique. Yes, lowest yield, but the most bond-like features in terms of the income. And the reason for that is we really are a country of three cities with six others. So we got, you know, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, where we see the bulk of our immigration go. Four to 500,000 people are plowing into those markets that are all land waterlocked, okay? So you've got a situation where you have urbanization happening. Big cities are getting bigger. Small towns are stabilizing. Natural population growth in those places. And four to 500,000 people coming into the country. And as Canadians, we all embrace immigration as popular voting strategy. But as Canadians, we hate development in our backyard. And so you've got the federal government controlling immigration and you have municipal governments determining development. And so they're completely disconnected and people have been fooled. So the affordability for Canadians is become crippled by housing policy, irresponsible housing policy, I would say, at the federal government level. And so you've got, you know, in the, let's go back to the three cities again, because it's way more complex than people realize. In these three big cities, we talked about urbanization, but we've also got delayed household formation. You know, the Tinder effect. Mm-hmm. People don't get married when they're 24. So that just doubles the need for housing, okay? Or it expands that cohort's need for housing. We have, per capita, one of the largest foreign student countries in the world. This year, something like 500,000 foreign students in our big cities. That's not counted in our immigration numbers. And the universities are following a business plan, understandably, where foreign students make a lot of sense to the economic viability of the university. So you've got that factor. You've got aging population. All that means is single level living. Okay. You've got a housing market that's being driven up and so quickly they can't build fast up. The trades, the price has gone through the roof. Mm -hmm. Development charges have tripled. All of this is the backdrop to what we've got going on in our three big cities. In the other six, and I call them Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, Ottawa, Ottawa, Quebec City. I don't know, throw in Halifax. Halifax yeah, sure. right. Maybe Victoria if you want. Yeah. Even, but they're all suffering from everything maybe but the immigration. They've got the same phenomenons going on in terms of a little bit of their own urbanization going on. All the same factors are there and product isn't keeping pace at all. We're headed to a crisis that's got no end in sight. Yeah, I can't remember who the guest on the podcast, but they were talking about you know the similar headwinds that we have with our housing issues. And it was the time from land acquisition to delivery of product. And we were the longest period in the OECD countries. Interesting, I didn't know And that. it was like, it was like, I don't know, the five average years. five years, six years. And oh, we were yeah. the longest out of all 30 of those countries, which is, you know, we feel it. We see it every day. We understand that to be true. But then when you do that comparison sort of globally, you're like, oh, that is actually probably not a very good statistic. We're, we're, it is possible to be better. Yeah. Ever. Oh, wait. Yeah. Yeah, clearly. We love, we love bureaucracy here in Canada. This is for sure. So do you want to talk about you know, what your strategy is? I mean, maybe let's put some context. You talked about expansion into other countries. 
you know, Adam and I you know, did some interviews for this podcast during a part of the Global Property Market Forum a couple of days ago. And we had a couple of guests on talking about how they're seeing a ton of Canadian capital sources looking to get out of Canada only because there's so much capital here and it's so hard to find product and deploy your capital. So are you still in major growth mode in Canada and that's your main focus? Or is there a kind of a need to, from where I sit as a lender and, and a major apartment lender, there's so much money right now being put into that sector. How are you finding it? How are you growing? How are you growing the Canadian? market it's a little bit different like we've we've grown the portfolio this year in canada by 6300 units that's great but we're growing it through three capital allocation strategies we've got the manufactured home space which we're consolidating in canada we're the second largest owner of manufactured homes in canada and that sector from a REIT perspective is so incredible what people don't realize is that in the u.s there's been phenomenal cap rate compression for mhc's and the reason for that is the income is so stable. So even when Alberta went through its huge, you know, jolt with the energy sector meltdown, manufactured homes kept going. Why? Because people own the homes and they rent the land and they don't move the homes. So, you know, it doesn't have any shocks to it. That, so that's great. We've been doing quite well. How do you manage location for that? Because that's, that's not major core centers for, the, for that product. Yeah, it's a different service offering. At the end of the day, you're in the land rental business. So you're, we're not maintaining the homes because we don't own them. Right. It, we're maintaining the communities, but it's more infrastructure management, rent collection. Would you have a strategy as far as just picking the locations for where you would entertain that kind of product? It wouldn't be the big three or even the other six. Yeah, no, is, no, or is, it, the is it kind of anywhere goes because there's always going to be demand it's, for it's it almost, in small towns? It's almost anywhere goes. We study what the dynamics are in the local market. Now, remember, this is the most affordable end of the housing mm-hmm. chain. So, you know, food and shelter are kind of what people need. And is it t- it's not tied to employment either. I'd guess no. you've got a lot, of, a lot of retirees. So you're no. not even looking for places that have, you know, manufacturing sectors or, or whatever it may be. No, we find that people, people that live in these smaller places aren't always just there for employment. They become regionalized and they, they want to stay near their home. And so we do look at the, the dynamics of the local economy. We wouldn't, we've never gone to Fort McMurray, for example, because we don't believe in sort of, you know, jumping on stability to, of, yeah, of, that, stability. of that, that market. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I hadn't finished. And so yeah, we've sure. been able to pick up what we call our value add opportunities in smaller places. London, Ontario, we've been very successful. We continue to be successful with value add in both Victoria and Vancouver. And then the real new source of transactions has been new merchant new constructed assets. We've got a whole lot of different stories behind each one of those transactions. But in a lot of cases, it was distress. We're a builder at a partner and right up to the point of needing to get their financing, they get jammed. So we don't have any problem taking the lease up risk on an almost completed apartment building. And we were able to buy some of those in the West. So every story is a little bit different, but it's new construction because the consolidators, again, have put everything, there's still a little value add now. Yeah. So if you're going to grow your portfolio, it's going to be new construction, which has a whole different growth profile difference going forward. And some of the other things I talked about. So you said, so let's brown that. Let's, yeah. so you had three capital sources, you yeah. said. So that one was the manufacturing homes. Manufacturing homes. One is sort of merchant. Brand uh, new builds. Brand new builds. And it was third development, no, I guess. value add. There's third is a value four. add. So you're still, there, okay. there is four because we have 11,000 units in the entitlement process at Capital. Oh, so you are, on our you existing are, lands. So, you are, so that's just an intensification we, of your existing land. A hundred percent. It's easy to rationalize when the land's free. When the it? land, well, it, it's easier. <laughs> easier. Sorry. <laughs> you know? yeah, fair. Yeah. But we, and I only say easier because we, you know, our investors want to know when we're starting and I won't answer them because I want to run a pro forma at the building permit stage. I don't know what costs are going to be. I don't, not sure what development charges will oh. actually be. And believe it or not, those two things alone are enough to stop a rental property from going ahead. 
Yeah, you know, sure. the land is great, but you know, highest and best use is probably still condo. There might be viable condo sites, but they may not be viable rental sites. I'm not a big believer in five dollar a month rents. You're in a very volatile end of the marketplace there. I've seen higher on performers recently, but uh, it, it is the future of some of the rental units. Hey, like a thousand units for five grand a month. Sorry, thousand square feet for five thousand a month is a big ask. You're now in the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar income earner range. Using that thirty percent of income ratio, but yeah. we're finding that's that's old now, right? It is it's old. Forty or fifty percent is what I think the average is in those three those three urban yeah. centers. It Unfor- is. Unfortunately, it is, and it's also you know we're into a new reality now too. Like we're actually not even in the apartment business in the core cities anymore. When you're talking those five dollar ranges, we're in the room renting business. The market's organizing itself right now, but we're finding that in those units, very rarely do you have a single client. You've got three people sure. sharing, well, that, a, sharing a unit. That's a great segue. So have, have you been investigating that sort of co-living space? We're seeing more and more I, people talking about that. I haven't seen a lot truly come to the market, but well, everybody seems to think that that student housing, quote-unquote, style is, is the next horizon. Well, I was going to make the prediction. It sounds like somebody else has already made it. But like we've seen student housing, and we understand that in the big cities, it's not uncommon, especially in Toronto now, to find student housing where people are charged 1500 a room. Mm-hmm. You had a four-bedroom apartment, student housing, 1500 a room, you had a $6,000 rent. Yeah. Okay? But I'm suggesting... With, 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 that, they're not students living there. And that's the, we gotta well, find that, a, yeah, the new ec- they call it co-living, I guess, yeah, is the terminology. Well, the new economic it. reality is people need to roommate to make it work. Mm-hmm. So there are apps in the U.S. now that are you know, putting tenants together. We know what's happening in Canada. Is people are just naturally... We're not doing it for them. But they are doing it amongst themselves in a very high percentage of our high rent rate units. So when it comes to the design of apartment buildings in the core, CapRate will be absolutely looking at co-living as a design element. So you can't just take a condo and make it a rental, okay? Or you, you can. The risk is, and the better use of money may be, having four-bedroom units where it's co-living, where we're doing individual leases to the general yeah, public. with four bathrooms. That's right. People want bathrooms. People want privacy, their own bedroom, common element space with a gym, yeah. access to transit so they don't have to buy a car. That's how they can afford to live in the city. Most of the kids don't have cars. How are you viewing the, the amenities space and what, what things are you now looking for? How are you, what are your tenants saying that they want? And is it an amenity war? We keep hearing yeah, that. we keep hearing that, that term. I, I think that there's an ego war amongst <laughs> developers. I don't know that there's actually an amenity war going on. Listen, real estate is a location business. People don't rent because of amenities. It's a it's factor in the decision-making process. They rent because they want to live at Young and Eglinton. Because the subway is there and they can get to work. They live at an intersection before family reasons, friend reasons. It's a location business, okay? Now, when you're offering a product at high rents, yeah, people want service and they want some amenities. I kind of snicker at some of the, it reminds me of like when condos were first built or rentals even in Toronto were first built. You take people to see the pool. Nobody uses the pool once they move in. <laughs> so it's great for the leasing exercise, but I'm not convinced. The thing that people absolutely want is a gym. Yeah. <laughs> they want a gym. They do want a place to read a book and maybe meet their neighbors if they're not going to be in their apartments. But at the end of the day, I think there's a bit of overblow when it comes to these amenities. Like it's, it's, and then on this topic, what about this? We hear the new term programmatic living. Like, are you guys entertaining some of that stuff? Are you, is it something that comes no. into your conversations at no. all? No, 
like, sure, we like having programs being run in the buildings, but I'm not yet convinced that these factors that people want to predict are the future are what is driving people into buildings. Yeah. We know that even today, the average renter looks at three properties in a 48-hour period to make the decision, okay? They're not amenity hunting and program hunting and, and sitting back and seeking out a particular lifestyle when they go into the marketplace. Yeah. They've got a weekend, and they got to live in this location. Yeah. It doesn't matter that on Tuesday nights they host a cooking, learn to cook event or anything like that. No, I'm not. I'm not entirely buying it. I don't want to. You know, I think say there's a seg- there must be a segment of the market that would be attracted to that, but I, it's probably a small segment. Well, I, I don't think anybody's unattracted to amenities. Yeah, well, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But, but the question is, will they pay for it? Your decision window is a matter of days. Yeah. yeah. Well, the one that I think we talked about this before on the podcast. And you mentioned the gym being the big driving force because that you can quantify. Yeah. You know, my good life doesn't cost me $80 a month. This building has That's it, right. $80 in savings. The rest of it, you don't really put a dollar value to a, a nook to read a book in. You know, it's a different, different proposition. I agree. And, and listen, you know, we know that the primary market in urban living are young people and they want to live in the city for a reason. They want to live in the city. Now they want comfort at home. And when you don't have a lot of space offering or a lot of privacy in your own unit, yeah, they want a place to be able to go read a book and work out, but their life is going to be in the city. It's going to be living in the city. It's going to be going to restaurants in the city. Some people will even join gyms in the city because they want a different experience, even if there's a gym in their own building. So, you know, it's more important, I think, to have that amenity space when you're not in the absolute core. If you're commuting in on a somewhat peripheral area, then yeah, having more at-home activities in your building, I think becomes more important. So you've been in the role of CEO for, for a year, I believe. Yes. yes. And so your direction in the company or your contribution to the direction of the company must have shifted over that time. What's your priorities in terms of you know, leaving your mark on this company? And if you could weave in, because I know you had a great relationship with Tom, yeah. and we talk about that a little bit and just how that has impacted who you are and, and how you now you know, handle this company. Yeah. So, you know, there's not a lot of difference be perfectly honest. Yeah. You know, I would say that having the ability to influence the company in its decision-making process the way I want is great. You know, we've been so active in our acquisition plan in 2019 and even 2018. Like we saw the birth of, like we were talking about the Netherlands, build 5,000 unit portfolio in two years is pretty remarkable. To add another 6,400 units to the Capri portfolio in Canada is pretty remarkable. To add 1,500 units to our Irish portfolio is pretty remarkable. So it's definitely a culture over the last two years of, of acquisitions and growth. Um, is that going to change? I, no. Why would it? I, why, I, would you, no, why would you change? I, I'll, I'll tell you what's different is that one of the things that we have done at Capri since I've been CEO is built out our acquisitions team where it was quite small before and really was done, I'd say, almost exclusively between Tom and I. It's now expanded to an acquisition team of seven. So we've got underwriting coverage constantly in the markets that we're focused in, in Canada, Ireland, and the Netherlands. And we're able to underwrite at a, at a rate that we've never experienced before. So we lose 95% of the deals we bid on. But despite that, we were able to add the yeah, portfolios that I just talked about. It adds about. up almost to 10,000 units, right? Yeah, so... Yeah, so We've got to be mindful of our ability to integrate. Capred is such a machine now that we're, it sounds like a lot, but it's integrating in different regions and those regions have capacity for the integration and it creates excitement for people. It creates growth, employment growth opportunities for people. 
It gives our investors confidence that we can take on challenges like this, integrate with virtual with no financial disruption, and if anything, accelerated returns. You know, we go back, like Tom was an incredible influence for me. You gotta remember I'm a twenty nine year old guy, now a fifty two year old guy. But when I started, you know, Tom just had a completely different approach to the business. It was all about service in a time when it was rent controlled in Ontario and service was something landlords didn't do because they were rent controlled. <laughs> yeah. They didn't have the money to do it. And Tom would never give up on that. He was also very, very focused on the people. Capri's an incredible story of diversity in terms of the people that, that work for our company. And we've did nothing but build on that. Like the last seven years, we've been um, one of Aon Hewitt's top 50 employers in Canada with platinum status over the last three years. How would you define the culture at Capri? It's caring about our employees. So we do a lot of training. We have a lot of education. Our people want to be engaged in cause, especially the younger workforce. They want to come to work, but they want an environment where they're contributing. And so we do a lot of charitable work. We do we spend a lot of time on a career path for people, and we deliver. The growth allows us to deliver on these wonderful promises of growth. But, you know, every month we have, you know, announcements of who's, who's moved up, who's been promoted to get circulated to the whole company. We have an employee internet site called The Lobby, where people can contribute things that are going on in their areas. There's a lot of competition that's friendly amongst all of our different regions, and it's a lot of fun. We have conferences where we bring people from Europe and all over Canada in twice a year. We do workshops. There's, we have almost 1,000 employees, but the conference has, on average, about 300 people that will attend. And, uh, and that's your opportunity to share the Canadian culture with the with yeah. the international offices. Yeah, like and then our culture has been highly embraced. Like in the Netherlands, I remember we just did a employee get together where we addressed the staff. And uh, when I go over there, I'll get the staff together. Our Amsterdam office has forty people in it mm. because we have no field staff. All of our staff is in our head office there. But it just simply addressing the employees, they're just not used to the CEO engaging with them. They couldn't believe that when we had our board meeting over there, the board was in They're used to board members and management going into a sealed room and not talking to them. That's the culture. So the disruptors, we come in and we're openly asking for feedback and listening to their ideas and implementing it. And, and it's welcomed. Welcomed. Highly yeah. welcomed. So, yeah, we've got a great, it's all about the people. Like my, my single biggest focus once I was made the CEO, and this actually even surprised me, is my own retirement. It's my own secession. I want to get ready to go. And I need the right secession in place for that to happen, for Capri to continue to be the company that it is. So, you know, we've got great people. We need to work on secession in all parts of our business so that we don't have disruption and we can carry this story forward. This is an incredible Canadian success story. There's not many Canadian real estate companies that have gone global with their management teams. And, and done it successfully. And done it well. Yeah. So Mark, I know you've got other responsibilities today here at the forum. We want to thank First National for powering the podcast. We want to thank Informa for hosting us here today at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. It is, you know, one of my favorite events of the year. It is the biggest. It is the most. We can, you can hear it in your voice too. <laughs> yeah. You can hear yes, signs of strain from multiple days of conferencing. But uh, Mark, we want to thank you most of all for coming on. Well, thanks so much for having me and, and letting uh, us talk about the Capri story. We're very proud of it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.